Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, you bet. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 202. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Got a pair of good conversations for you this week in the second half. Legendary songwriter Jimmy Webb talks with us about his return to the road, touring uh, the eastern United States and the United Kingdom this spring. And we'll talk with Jimmy about that and more. Up first, though, a frequent visitor to our radio show and the podcast. He is, well, America's storyteller. Documentary filmmaker Ken Burns has been telling the story of America for more than three decades now with his acclaimed projects for PBS. His newest is a look at a man who, well, at a time in the 1700s, was the most famous American in the world. And you would think we know everything there is to know about Benjamin Franklin, but as is often the case, Ken Burns and his crew find some information that uh, most people weren't aware of. And it's a compelling story of a man whose life was full of contradictions, inventions, and more. Benjamin Franklin premieres Monday, April 4th on PBS, and we talked with Ken Burns about the making of the film. Well, hello there, Ken. Thanks for coming back with us for, uh, uh, gosh, the third time in a year. You're on the show almost as much as I am, and and frankly, you're shaming us with your productivity lately. Well, we've got another one coming out uh, in September, too, on the U.S. and the Holocaust, so uh, hang on. (laughs) I don't think I'll work on a more important film than that one, but uh, anyway. Well, this I'm uh, happy to be with you. This new film is is so good and uh, very interesting, as always, for a man who was arguably the most famous American in his own time. There was still a lot that I didn't know about Benjamin Franklin. Is that is that what drives you as a filmmaker to find those untold stories? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to freely admit I was among the ignorant. I don't make films about things I know and think you should know about. The last time I checked. That's called homework. Um, <laughs> what I'd rather do with you is share our process of discovery. Our writer, Dayton Duncan, my co-producer, uh, David Schmidt, the editor, Craig Mellish, and the, and the whole team. And, and to say, you know, I probably went in, I can't really remember, thinking that that lightning had to strike the kite, the child's, uh, you know, conventional wisdom. And then all of this, most of it was a mystery. You know, he's held up. Because he's on the hundred dollar bill and not for any accident. He's held up as this sort of symbol, generation after generation of American striving, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, a kind of libertarian um, hero. But he'd be, you know, pretty shocked by that because he always felt that that personal success had to be tethered to civic responsibility and to generosity. And so, you know, he held all of his famous inventions, including the lightning rod, without patent, made no money on them whatsoever. The bifocals, the catheter, the, the uh, improvements on the wood stove, all of the things that he did and, and much more, all was a way of, of, of um, being the unum part of e pluribus unum, our, our, our model. But he's the most, he is without a doubt the most known American of the 18th century in the world for his scientific discoveries. He's our best writer. He's our best humorist. 
he's a successful businessman, a printer, a publisher, a, a publisher of almanacs, a newspaper man, a postmaster. Uh, he doesn't get into politics until, you know, he's until late middle age. And uh, he's the oldest of the, the, the founding fathers and uh, the greatest diplomat in American history without his working his magic with the um, the uh, the French, uh, we would have not won the revolution. And he's the one who had the great honor of proposing the adoption of the Constitution at the Constitutional Convention, which passed uh, many of them compromises that he designed. Some of them we look back now and understand how tragic those consequences were uh, for, for other people, uh, particularly the enslaved people of the South. But he nevertheless uh, helped create the country. And he, at that time, is as famous, if not more famous, than George Washington. But he understood how things went. He was a very wise man and sort of allowed Washington to sort of take the lead, as he said. He's a man of many contradictions, none more so than the evolution of his view on slavery. Early on in the film, we learned that he was worried about the influx of what he called swarthy immigrants, and yet one of his last public acts was to advocate, uh, advocate for abolition. Uh, he called it that last errata to be corrected. Yes, exactly. And, and those swarthy immigrants were Germans. And I think, you know, having just finished the film on the Holocaust, the, the Nazis would be, you know, pretty upset to hear that, that Benjamin Franklin thought that they were swarthy because, of course, they thought themselves the ideal of whiteness and, and a lot of bad stuff came out of that. Yes, he had very um, bizarre views in many cases, pretty much uh, of the time in, in, in uh, some instances. You know, he, he talks about, he laments those swarthy German immigrants coming in, but he loves the lovely white and red, meaning he's got already uh, uh, a kind of romanticizing of the native population, which he's both very sympathetic to and tolerant of and critical of those people who abuse them, but also very happy uh, to dispossess them of their lands and print the treaties that are doing just that and speculating in land in the Ohio Valley that would, of course, displace even more Native peoples. But, you know, the biggest thing is, is once he'd made a success, he, he had several, he enslaved several people in his household. And um, the number's not exactly precise. We don't know what happened to all of them. We know at least one ran away. And while his son, William, uh, put out an ad when they were in London seeking uh, that person, King was his name's return, uh, they did kind of very little. But he started a school for black children mm. in Philadelphia and was surprised, surprised to see that they had equal aptitude with whites in all things. And I think that's the beginning. He's beginning to understand, you know, the question of slavery is an issue in Pennsylvania and had been from before he was born. Um, just people debating the morality of it, particularly the Quakers who founded the state. Um, and so, you know, he evolved. And so by the time that he has helped work out the three-fifths compromise, he's also becoming the head of uh, a Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery, and he's, uh, he's given the, the task of introducing into Congress the, um, um, you know, this resolution abolishing slavery. You know, it's, pretty, um, it's a pretty amazing journey for one man to make, and we're happy he made it. I think he offers us a portal into our founding 
that's warts and all, but has a sense of humor, which he did, mm. but also has um, a sense of progress. The other founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, they're all static, you know. They don't change. You know, they, they can write all men are created equal, Thomas Jefferson, but he's not going to free his slaves. And that, I think, is the, um, you know, the, the interesting part about Benjamin Franklin is that he's corrigible. You know, he's looking, he's learning, he wants to improve himself his whole life and does and gets on, as the scholar Erica Dunbar says in our film, gets on the right side of history. You told us many years ago that race may well be the single most important issue in American history. But I remember you also said you don't go looking for it, but it's always there. It's always there. And, and you can't help it. How could it be when we're founded on the idea that all men are created equal? And yet the guy who wrote that, Thomas Jefferson, owned hundreds of other human beings in his lifetime. That's a hypocrisy and a contradiction that he couldn't really handle or deal with in his lifetime, and he didn't free his slaves in his lifetime. So what we have is this American conundrum. You know, uh, Condoleezza Rice, in a conversation about Benjamin Franklin the other day, called it our birth defect. Historians are, are often quoted as calling it our original sin. I think it's better to take it out of the religious dimension and just say, you know, we started off on the wrong foot in many ways, despite the greatness of our country. And we've spent an awful lot of time and energy and many steps backwards trying to address the consequences of having not addressed it at the beginning. And that's, you know, part of who we are. I would say the most important theme is freedom. And there again, Franklin is um, very much involved in this because that argument about paying back is part of this whole question about freedom. For a lot of people, freedom is what I want. Just that. Just that. And we also know that in order to be uh, a working country, it also has to respect what we need. And sometimes that's at odds. You know, what I want and what we need are not always the same thing. They were having a discussion about inoculation at the time. I mean, Washington ordered that the entire Continental Army be inoculated uh, against smallpox. You know, that was the thing. And there were some people who didn't think that that made sense because wasn't it giving you a little bit of a disease? So that tension, it, it runs throughout American history, um, and Franklin understands it. He's all about compromise. He's all about civil discourse and finding a way. He's also a kid whose parents want him to, they're, they're lower middle class candle makers, but they want him to go to Harvard. So they put him in a, in a, in a school, and they can only afford two years, and they pull him out, and he becomes an indentured servant to his brother indentured servant, one step away from actual slavery, mm. um, to his brother, uh, uh, James, who runs a printing press. Thank God for the rest of the world, because he learns uh, this hyper-literacy, as the uh, writer Joyce Chaplin says in our film, you know, setting type upside down and backwards, carrying the heavy things, made his body strong. But he, he, got, he was a voracious reader, and because he only had two, day, two years of schooling, uh, the scholar H.W. Brandner, who says, you know, he didn't know what he didn't have to know. School teaches you what you should know, but it also teaches you what you don't have to know. So Benjamin Franklin didn't know what he didn't have to know, and so he decided he have to, he'd have to know everything. And so what you have is this genius, born genius, but this voracious curiosity, this unbelievable reader, this guy with a wonderful sense of humor, and then feeling that he has to know everything in order to get ahead and 
does in one of the greatest success stories you could ever imagine. I mean, after his electricity experiments, and, and let's remember, you know, we get distracted by the kite story because it's cute. But this is a revolutionary thing. This is on the caliber of an Isaac Newton kind of gravity discovery. And the things that he does in kind of layman's terms that he applies to what he observes are all things we, we use today. Now, I don't know anything about electricity. I'm, I'm guessing you don't either. <laughs> but you've heard of negative and positive. You've heard of charge. You've heard of battery. You've heard of conductor. These are all Franklin's terms to help understand and communicate the discoveries of the properties of this heretofore unknown or sort of parlor game trick, you know, creating static electricity so you, a spark happens when you kiss somebody. Um, that's sort of, you know. We're talking with Ken Burns here on Downtown. You mentioned inoculation, and that's one of the most powerful stories in the film, the story of his own son, Francis. Yes, this is, um, um, this is a powerfully sad story. I pause because it makes me, um, you know, it makes me um, so sad. I mean, it, 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 it just moves me to tears. He's not a... His son, Frankie, had a cold. And in those days, the inoculation for the smallpox, the, the inoculation really wiped you out. So the thought was, he's a great proponent, and he wrote about it in his newspapers. He, he argued in favor of it. There wasn't the kind of ridiculous arguments we have today. It was just good science. And men of religion were behind it, too. Cotton Mather, the Puritan leader in, in Massachusetts, was promoting inoculation. It wasn't, you know, and, and, and everybody could sort of get the, the, the gist of it. But they knew how tough it would be on his system, um, and uh, and you know they wait. And poor Frankie, I'm going to tear up. You know, poor Frankie gets smallpox and dies, and it's the tragedy of, of his and and Deborah, his common law wife's thing. Um, you know, it's 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 very very sad. His family life was complicated from his relationship with Deborah uh, to the relationship with his son, William. And I wonder, too, if uh, in, in the research uh, you found that that humor that we know Franklin for came from that sadness that's the basis of so much humor. Yes, I think that's right. Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's Mark Twain who said, the source of laughter is not joy but sorrow. There is no laughter in heaven. And so when you see this life that is tongue-in-cheek in many ways, uh, one of the commentators in the film says he's the only founding father that winks at you and, <laughs> and evidently had a sense of humor. That, that's sort of uh, the first entree into Benjamin Franklin, and yet so much of it is parts of struggles. And I would think that everybody... Um, um, understands that. As much as we want happiness and calm seas, the things that define us are more often the tragedies or the difficulties or the obstacles, the mountains we have to climb, the rough seas that we have to weather. My mother died when I was 11, and look what I do for a living. You know, I, I wake the dead. Uh, uh, my late uh, father-in-law, a, a eminent psychologist, told me, you know, that's what I do for a living. He said, who do you think you're really trying to wake up? So I think that many of, uh, many of the things that have helped us along, given definition to our lives, are often sorrowful. And I, 
I think Franklin understood that. Twain would most definitely understand that and uh, and articulate it. And I think that's part of telling a complicated story. I mean, too often we either have a kind of you know revisionist history in which we discover that somebody in the past has done something that we don't approve of now, so they're gone. Um, then we have the other kind in which it's so sanitized and Madison Avenue uh, kind that you can't really learn anything. Um, and I, I guess we've introduced a new one, which is we can't even talk about certain things. We can't mention mm-hmm. certain things that are facts of life and history and, and human endeavor. Um, and we'd prefer none of those. We'd prefer a deep dive that understands the story of us, the U.S., but also us, the intimacy of us in 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 all its warts and complications. You know, the journalist I.F. Stone once said when one of his acolytes said, how can you admire Jefferson who owned other human beings? He said, young man, because history is not uh, melodrama, it's tragedy. That is to say, in melodrama, all heroes are perfectly virtuous and all villains are perfectly villainous. But life isn't like that. Everybody's complicated. The Greek mythologies have told us that. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great um, his great strength. And so we're, we have to tell stories that understand the tragedy of, of human existence, the fact that people can be one thing and also another, can be greedy on one hand and generous on another hand, that, that some of these divisions that we can obviously identify between people are often divisions that are within us and, and the people we love the most who are not going to be dismissed. We're not going to kick them out of our lives. We're going to figure out how to tolerate, correct, amend, um, love, reconcile, whatever it might be, uh, those things. And, and that's the great gift of, of telling a complicated history. Franklin reminds us, reminds us to kind of um, not take ourselves so pompously and so sanctimoniously uh, that we can look back and kind of arrogantly dismiss those who have gone before us as less uh, lesser people. Benjamin Franklin premieres uh, Monday, April 4th on PBS, and there's a real turning point in Franklin's life at the end of episode one when he's essentially called on the carpet in England and, uh, well, entered the cockpit of Britain, came out an American. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And it's, it, it, um, you know, his sympathies are beginning to go that way anyway. He's been trying to settle the disputes between the colonies. Uh, he's representing several colonies in addition to Pennsylvania in England. He spent years there, 15 of the last 17 years of his wife Deborah's life. Doesn't rehear- return to her when she's sick. He's trying to work out deals, trying to get his son William ahead, who ends up the royal governor of New Jersey, and that's a whole other split. Um, but, yes, he, he thinks he makes a huge political mistake. He thinks that by leaking some letters of a political friend of his back in Massachusetts, he can help calm tensions on both sides. Instead, he exacerbates them. And when he has to admit that he was the one who leaked the letters, here's a postmaster leaking letters. This is a friend leaking letters. This is, you know, this is a dastardly underhanded thing. And so he's goes into a place called the cockpit, which is a place where Henry VIII held cockfights in Whitehall. Uh, this sort of Westminster, you know, uh, place of government. And um, he is berated for an hour. He takes it silently by this ambitious prosecutor named Wedderburn. And as 
one of our, our commentators says, you know, he walked in a Britain and, and came out an American. And that, that, that's really a good way to summarize his beginning to see, by living in England, the kind of corruption all around him, just as his son William in, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in the United States now as a royal governor is, is beginning to sort of feel that all of this protest is in some ways you know, self-indulgent and, and corrupt itself. And so the son's moving in the run direction, the father and another, and they had once been the closest of friends, just almost like best friends together, inseparable. And uh, it, it's one of the great tragedies of the story of Franklin's life that his son, the last royal governor to be deposed, is in prison for a while, exchanged with prisoners, and presumed that he'd go back to England. Instead, he starts a terrorist organization killing patriots. Mm. And look, there are lots of patriot organizations killing loyalists. But, um, you know, Franklin never reconciled with his son again. Jefferson uh, sent Benjamin Franklin a draft, the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, Franklin made what proved to be a pretty key edit. Yeah, it's, 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 it's one of the great things um, in the history, the inner kind of history of our country that you, you just have to do it by, you know, go to the American Philosophical Society where they've got a copy of the Declaration of Independence in Jefferson's hand, very available, not like the formal scripts that you see. Um, and Jefferson has said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And then goes on with all of the wonderful stuff of that great second sentence of, of the Declaration distilling a century of Enlightenment thinking into one sentence, one sentence. It's just remarkable, and it's our catechism. It's what, why we're Americans, you know? But Jefferson said, but, but Franklin looks at it and says, this is beautiful, but not sacred and undeniable. This is self-evident. We're in the age of Enlightenment. We are holding things to be true. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And so Jefferson yields immediately, and you can see the emendations. You can see the correction on the copy. It's so beautiful, and it's so exciting to feel like you're at that moment where, you know, Jefferson moves to Philadelphia. He writes alone uh, a draft attended uh, by a slave, Robert Henson, and he feels honor-bound to send it to the wisest man in the colonies, Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Franklin recognizes the beautiful prose, but makes this correction. And it's, as Clay Jenkins, a writer in our film, a scholar in our film, says, you know, world class. <laughs> Boy, is it. You know, and it's, it's, it's a pretty um, gutsy call, too, to say self-evident, you know, to say that, that these rights, you know, for, for all of mankind, people have been ruled by, by rulers, by tyrants, not by the consent of the governed. And, um, and they're suggesting the most radical thing in human governmental organization. And they're saying, yep, this is the way it is and always has been. It's self-evident that this is this way. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. And yet when he comes out of the Constitutional Convention and is asked what they've actually created, a monarchy or a republic, he says to Elizabeth Willing Powell, a leading lady of Philadelphia, whose own rights were not addressed at all in the Constitution, as so many others were not, um, he says, a republic, if you can keep it. So he understood that though these things may be self-evident, they're still very fragile and require a kind of cooperation, a willingness to compromise. And I think 
he'd be extremely disappointed by the bitter partisanship today where everybody's their own independent free agent. You go to you go to Congress not to get things done, but to make a lot of noise, usually against something, rarely for something. You mentioned the Enlightenment. Do you think that his intense interest in the Enlightenment movement is what drove him to to be part of so many firsts, the first library, the first volunteer fire department, so many firsts in his life, was that intimately tied to his study of the Enlightenment? I think it's a, a, a series of things. The Enlightenment is, of course, something born in Scotland and Europe, you know, uh, uh, by many uh, men of, of religion, David Hume, others who are writing about John Locke, about the essential rights of human beings as you escape the kind of religious tyranny as well as the monarchical tyranny that is governing almost everyone's existence, at least in Europe. And and he's reading as a kid, and he's imbibing all of this as a kid and a young man, and he's starting a discussion group with his fellow tradesmen, his fellow workers, you know, the Leather Apron Club called the Junto, which means coming from the Latin to join together. So there, he's interested in the symbolism of people coming together. And later on, as the Enlightenment, um, you know, permeates down all of these things, the libraries are reflections of that. It's really, um, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, you talked a little bit about his efforts to recruit France to the uh, colonist side, but how important was his work in negotiating the Treaty of Paris? Well, you know, first of all, the French thing is amazing um, uh, because, um, you know, he, he we, we forget this. We think of, you know, Washington at Valley Forge and Bunker Hill and Lexington and Concord and all of these great things. But if you look at, at Yorktown, Washington's there with 9,000 federal, uh, 9,000 continental soldiers. Um, most of them closed and armed by France. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. With him are an almost equal number of French soldiers led by the Marquis de Lafayette. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. Uh, or, or at least Marquis de Lafayette is part of that, that crowd. And blocking Cornwallis's escape by sea is a French fleet. Thank you very much, Dr. Franklin. <laughs> so that, this is you know, the, the key. No Franklin, no us, no United States. But then... And he's done it with this kind of suavity, uh, as Clay Jenkinson says, and this wonderful sort of put off the gas. Yes, yes, not getting anything done to the outside observers, but getting everything done because they love the development of the relationships with this most famous of Americans and this most famous of men on earth, you know. And uh, they give him what he wants. Then he goes into the negotiation with the Brits, and he is hard-nosed. He is pedal to the metal. He is, you know, you what reparations? What about us reparations? You burn this city, you burn that city. No way. And even Adams and the other um, negotiators there are kind of stunned at his vehemence and his anger. And maybe some of it has to do in large part because of his frustrations with William's obstinacy about, you know, about staying loyal. Um, it's, it's, it's a it's a complicated story, but you know that Treaty of Paris is so one-sided. First of all, the other Americans wanted to exclude the French, which Franklin initially didn't, but let them have their way. And then he had the task of explaining to the French why it didn't, um, you know, uh, why they didn't, why they weren't involved, and they didn't get anything out of it. And you know, he 
he, he does it so diplomatically that he says, and oh, by the way, we need some more money, and they <laughs> gave it to him. And Britain, you know, is, is kind of locked out. And so what you have created uh, is an American empire. It's really a spectacular thing. The, the, the United States that the Treaty of Paris creates is not the 13 colonies clinging tenuously to the East Coast. It now extends to the Mississippi River and from Canada to the northern border of Florida. And it's bigger than England and France and Spain combined. So it's like, watch out. Right? <laughs> it's just Franklin's negotiation with the French causes Cornwallis to surrender to Washington at Yorktown. And now you've got a new world power with unbelievable natural resources. I was delighted to hear friend of our show, Mandy Patinkin. He was perfect as the voice of Benjamin Franklin. What inspired that choice? Well, thank you for recognizing that. I, I think, you know, most of the success of this film has a lot to do with the beautiful script by Dayton Duncan and the beautiful editing by Craig Mellish and the producing by David Schmidt and the folks who've been collecting the photograph, uh, the, collecting the paintings and the drawings. There are no photographs and making it come alive. Um, but Mandy makes Benjamin Franklin come alive. And I was watching Homeland and had uh, just an epiphany. And he said, yes, all in COVID. I, I have yet to meet him physically. We've been on many Zooms together. He was blown away by the film by year, when a year plus later we gave him the finished copy after he had spent an arduous day reading it with just an incredible intention and, and focus. Uh, and understanding and inhabiting of every single word. It really just comes alive. And, and Franklin doesn't seem some, in some far-off galaxy, some distant century, but like right with us. So, um, yeah, Mandy is, is just a wonderful human being, a wonderful actor, and a great contributor to this. And I'm, I'm glad I had that uh, epiphany. And he now thinks that it ranks with the three best things he's done. Uh, Sunday in the Park with George, the Sondheim musical, The Princess Bride, and and this. And I said, but what about Saul Berenson, the role he plays on, <laughs> on Homeland? He said, yeah, but, you know, this. And he's, um, he's, he's, a, he's a mensch. He's a wonder, as you know, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Ken, as a history teacher, I always try to make things relevant and help students understand how our past impacts us today. How does the story of Benjamin Franklin help us learn about ourselves in 2022? In, in every way conceivable. It's so funny that when you tell a good story historically, it resonates, lawfully resonates in the present. It is about us. You know, people like to say history repeats itself. It doesn't. But human nature remains the same. And if you can get under the skin of that human nature of another age, it is a huge lesson for us today. So there isn't an area civic, political, moral, religious, uh, intimate, uh, that Franklin isn't there speaking exactly to things that are going on in our own lives. And I think it's hugely important, particularly as we find ourselves so divided, to at least go back to people that are beloved on both sides of the aisle or on both sides of this partisan divide and begin to realize how healing these stories can be, how transformative these stories can be. You know, the novelist Richard Powers says, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. 
Well, it is that indeed. A wonderful film that premieres Monday night, April 4th on PBS. Benjamin Franklin. Ken, as always, thank you so much for making time for us. We appreciate it. Wish you continued success and I hope to talk with you about uh, the U.S. and the Holocaust later in the year. Look forward to that. Thanks so much. Ken Burns talking Benjamin Franklin here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break. When we come back, the great Jimmy Webb joins us. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. An early hit song written by Jimmy Webb, Johnny Maestro, and Brooklyn Bridge in their million seller from 1969, The Worst That Could Happen. Jimmy, uh, like everybody else, keeping close to home during COVID, but getting ready to head back out on the road for a tour of uh, the eastern part of the United States and a trip to the United Kingdom as well. We talked with Jimmy about getting back on the road and touring once again. Hello, Rich. Hey, Jimmy, how are you today? I'm really good. It's it's beautiful here on the north shore of Long Island. It's a sunny day with blue skies and no reason not to be optimistic. Absolutely. Yeah, well, optimistic uh, when you're going uh, back out on the road. Well, what's it feel like to get ready to be out there performing in front of human beings again? Um, a little shaky, a, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm... I'm all, I'm you know my one of my sayings is that you know if if you, the performer doesn't have a little stage fright then the audience isn't getting their money's worth <laughs> but uh, yeah I guess I guess I'm a little nervous about it but uh getting in the groove I've I've played a couple of gigs now and I found out you know it's still there you know after 2 years you know I when I when I reach for it I've still got the chops and so I'm, you know, I'm going to get into it. You know, I, I don't know how many more years I'll be able to do it, but I'm, I'm, you know, people still come out, you know, most of the time I'm, I'm at capacity and enjoying myself. You know, I don't like airports much. I'm sort of like turning into Willie Nelson. I think I'm going to get a bus, <laughs> but, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're looking forward to having you up here in Maine at Jonathan's in Agunquit on Friday, April 1st. Uh, you'll be uh, throughout the Northeast. And then, uh, very exciting, too, you've got a tour of the U.K. coming up as well. I always look forward to that. Uh, I have some good friends uh, uh, all over the U.K. Uh, you know, London's like a second city to me. I was there quite a bit when I was, well just out of my teens, really. I was, I was a kid and I, it made a, you know, a stunning impression on me that I never quite got over. You know, it's, uh, 
there's also uh, Edinburgh and and uh, the the whole of Scotland and that wonderful you know vibe up there. You know, I had one time when I was playing the Green Room in London, I had five guys from Scotland drive down and um they they claimed they stopped at every pub between Scotland and <laughs> and the, the green room and i and i knew those guys for years they used to come to my club uh, they'd used to come to the shows and they'd say hi i'm one of the guys who drove down from Scotland <laughs> to see your show i have good friends over there i love dublin i'm 61% Irish, according to my DNA, which, you know, I love Irish music. I love Irish culture, uh, the opportunity to play for them. There's such a, a race of artistic people, and it's a special opportunity to get to go to Ireland. So uh, all of that, and and uh, I and I think... Um, uh, Copenhagen as well, you know. So I'm 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 beginning to make new friendships in uh, in the Norse countries. We're talking with Jimmy Webb here on Downtown. Well, one of the great things about seeing you live is that uh, you not only hear the wonderful music, but you get the stories behind it too. And uh, when you were up here uh, a couple of years back, uh, it, it was such a wonderful time. It was such a a comfortable experience. Uh, the audience felt like we were in your living room listening to you play and tell stories. Do you, do you have a set list when you do your live shows or do you just go with a, what feels right at any given time? I, I, I always have a set list, but my policy is to ignore it whenever possible. <laughs> I, um, you know, uh, probably 15, 20 years ago, um, I start, I started getting a lot of requests for stories. You know, I was, playing pretty much straight music and maybe a couple of little, you know, references to people who had recorded the song or, you know, just trivia, really. And uh, I started telling some stories about uh, my father, the the Baptist preacher, Coon Marine, and, and what it was like to grow up with him, which was pretty hair-raising. Uh, and um, people began to say, you know, we like the show, but... we could you tell more stories? You know? <laughs> after a while, it got to be a kind of a, you know, uh, and I, I hate to say this, but it became something that other people copied. There were some really well-known uh, cabaret artists and, and uh, certain people who actually came in and sat down and watched what I was doing and wrote it down. <laughs> I was, I mean, I can remember sitting up on stage and watching them write it down, and I thought, <laughs> well, this is not complicated, guys. I'm just playing songs and telling tales, you know. <laughs> and pretty soon it it coalesced into a kind of production that I'm comfortable with because I really need to be comfortable on stage. I'm 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 the nervous type. I I don't want anything to go wrong. At some point in my performing career, I began to realize that when something goes wrong, that's a great opportunity to make the audience <laughs> laugh, you know, to 
to sort of uh, bend it like Beckham, you know, make make the show do what you want it to do, which is to entertain. And the more comfortable I got with it, the more comfortable the audiences got with it. I think it's, you know, it's kind of become a trademark. Pe- people know it's it's going to be an easy evening, and they they know there's going to be some laughter. There's going to be probably a, one or two tears as well. But hopefully my goal is to take people away from the pressure of, of this 21, this 21st century life and, and, and this, you know, the torrent of bad news that just seems to overwhelm us from time to time. And, um, I, I, I think that I like to provide, uh, at least an evening where, you know, we just enjoy each other and we enjoy music, the common, the universal language, uh, which has helped me through so many, you know, really bad moments in my life. The, the music of other people has helped me. I'm just like my audiences. I, I look for solace in music. And so, you know, it's become a little a little bit of a therapeutic session, I guess, you know. Uh I certainly like to leave people feeling better if I can. Well, you certainly do. Then, uh, speaking of telling stories, your memoir, uh, The Cake and the Rain was so terrific, but it it stopped pretty young in your life. Will there be a sequel at some point? Well, I'd lo- I'd love to do it and um uh i i have i have a publisher who's who's very interested in and in, in it, it, it and as you say you know it really stopped abruptly <laughs> let's just, let's be honest i mean it was like falling off a cliff but um you know there was there was kind of a reason for that as well it, that was a a nexus that was a turning point right. in my life where i really had to reevaluate what i was doing with my life because I came so near to, to lose it, losing the ability to, to play the piano. Um, and, uh, so, so I deliberately stopped it there. And, and then, you know, I, obviously I found a way to continue my life and, uh, uh, I would like to continue that story. I have lots and lots of hilarious things that happened. The fact that I moved east, I mean, as a Californian, that I would move my family to to New York in the worst blizzard of the decade, <laughs> you know, and and completely change my life uh, is a fish out of water story that you wouldn't believe. I mean, you know, the it, the differences between living in California and living in New York make for some pretty funny material. Um, but I did come back here. I've spent like 35 years here now. Um, and, uh, I think it was a good decision, even though I think a lot of people thought I was crazy. Most people want to move to California, (laughs) not the other way around. I was listening uh, the other night because the 40th anniversary of uh, the release of Angel Heart is coming up next month. And I was listening to that again. And it's such a, a wonderful album. I think some of your very best songs on there. Hey, I thank you very much for that. You know, um, 
I was backed up by Toto, uh, Steve Lukather, Jeffrey Picaro, uh, David Pace, et al. Uh, you know, you couldn't ask for, for a greater band. I mean, just to have that band just say, we'll come in and play. We'll, you know, you'll, you'll basically be in Toto, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll, this will be an experience, you know, it was like an experience really, um, cutting an album with them. And I'm still knocked out whenever I hear, whenever I hear Stephen Lukather, I recognize his style immediately. I know, I know his playing so well. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was right on the cusp. It was it was almost as I was moving to New York that album came out, and uh, I thought it was I thought it really deserved to do better than it did. But uh, you know I have no no sour grapes over it. I I go back and I look at the things I did, and my philosophy now is I. I create music, I record, I go straight ahead. Sometimes I work with other people and I don't pay any attention to the commercial side of it. To me, that's just distraction and it's it's not going to help me uh, to create another album. It, it's just better to keep your mind, for me, to keep my mind on my my purpose, which is to create music. So that's what I do. I try not to grieve too much over these albums that didn't sell. But occasionally, you know, they come up. I produced an album for the Supremes. Critics thought it was great, you know, didn't sell. I produced an album for Cher <laughs> that was a disappointment. I mean, you know, you can't... Sometimes it's, you know, on the other hand, you run across something like Highwaymen, and you've got Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, uh, Johnny Cash, and Waylon Jennings all recording the same song. It turns into an album called The Highwaymen. It turns into a name for the group. The group calls themselves The Highwaymen, and it becomes a kind of legend to legend in its own you know, right. A song that was uh, turned down by Capitol Records for Glenn Campbell, uh, which, by the way, caused Glenn to walk out of Capitol Records and <laughs> never went back. So there's quite a history around that song. Originally written for an album I was doing with George Martin uh, called El Mirage. And... Um, so you know it's it's the good with the bad and the ugly sometimes you know you 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 just uh if you if you're around as long as I am and I'm you know I'm 75 but when it when it comes to music I don't I don't think of myself as an old man I think of myself as 30 years old and ready to sing and ready to play the piano and and not not having lost much uh so I'm still in the game. I've got some new songs. I'm ready to cut another album. Um, and I'm looking forward to this tour, and I'm looking forward to Maine. I go to Maine um, 
every every summer. Right. I take my kids up there. So yeah, your your neighbors with uh, with our owner here, Stephen King, right? Well, I uh, we occasionally cross paths in the <laughs> center level market. <laughs> hey Jimmy, I have to ask you too. How is uh, how is Josephine doing? Uh, you know, uh, God bless you for bringing Josephine. She is the light, and she's the light of my life. She's uh, she's uh, five going on six, going on thirty five. <laughs> she's uh, she plays the piano. She uh, she's a thespian. She's a ballet dancer. She's a comedian. She's uh, she's a she's a teacher. She's she's all I've you know I had forgotten that childhood is full of roles. It's full of role playing, of being different different things, and uh, it's it's a wondrous thing to see because as you get older, you tend to get in a groove, and 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 you only do one thing, and you you try to do it well. But uh, but when you're six years old, you're doing everything. You know, <laughs> she's going to be an astronaut. She's uh, she's she's she knows about women's rights. She's she's pretty smart. And um, the first time I ever saw her, um, she had a head of black hair and these like kind of uh, uh, bluer than blue eyes. You know, almost purple eyes, and I said that that looks like uh, a baby picture of Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> and she's turned into you know I, I I hate to brag like this, <laughs> and I and I don't want to put too much emphasis on this either, but she is rather beautiful, <laughs> I must say. Well, that's wonderful. Well, uh, we wish you great luck out on the tour. Uh, by the way, send along uh, from us, please, a happy belated birthday to your wife, Laura, as well. Okay. Well, I will do that. Laura is right now in Florida roller skating. She bought a pair of roller skates <laughs> and went to Florida. I don't know whether that's a bad sign or not. But <laughs> hopefully she comes back, you know. <laughs> Well, Jimmy, it's always good to talk with you. Thank you for making time for us. Uh, have a wonderful time out on the road, and uh, we look forward to, to seeing you soon. Listen, I'm in your debt. You know, thank you for helping me promote my concerts. And uh, I, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. I appreciate it very much. We're always happy to talk with you. Thanks again, Jimmy. All right. Bye-bye. Always great to talk with Jimmy Webb. Thanks to Jimmy, and thanks to Ken Burns. Both regulars here on the podcast and the show. And, uh, man, uh, you, you've seen it. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, folks are really going to love this Benjamin Franklin documentary from Ken Burns. Uh, how he does this, I think of it last year with the Muhammad Ali. I mean, you thought you knew everything about Ali. They were able to find footage that you hadn't seen before and, and information that uh, very few people knew about. It's the same thing with Benjamin Franklin, just less footage. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of woodcuts, though. Oh, like, yes, you know, yes. Some beautiful ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is amazing. And uh, it, even if you're a history buff, there, there is a lot in this that uh, will grab you. And if you're not a real history buff, it, it is a must-watch. Yeah, Franklin is such an interesting guy. And Ken Burns doing a wonderful job telling the story starting April 4th on PBS. That'll do it for us. Thanks for joining us. 
this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance. <laughs> 